119, Exalting the Word of God. And with tonight's lesson, we bring to a close this expository series on this beautiful and very powerful and poignant psalm that does indeed, with every line and virtually every word, exalt the Word of God, the all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. The psalmist reaches the climax of his psalm tonight, increases the fervency of his cry, of his prayer to the Father in heaven, as we shall see in the first two verses of this psalm tonight, as we look at the final eight verses, the final stanza, the final paragraph, 22 paragraphs, remember, all uh, in line with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, all of them containing eight verses, and each verse beginning with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet, an acrostic psalm. And here in this final paragraph, the psalmist pleads with great fervency, Let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. This is not the first time that he has pleaded for understanding and recognized, obviously, the need to understand the Word of God. When we go back earlier in this psalm to verse 27, Make me understand, there he writes, the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Make me understand the way of of your precepts. And then, not that long ago, as we studied in verse 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. And if you recall at that time, we talked about the fact that we can read the Word of God and understand the Word of God, especially if our attitude toward the Word of God is one in which we approach it with the attitude that says, uh, here I am, an empty bucket, as it were, fill me up, rather than approaching the Word of God with a preconceived notion or a preconceived idea as to what we want the Word of God to say to us. Remember, we looked at Ephesians chapter 3, back when we looked at verse 144, and verse uh, 3 and verse 4, how that by revelation, Paul writes, he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which, verse 4, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul was an inspired apostle. He was the inspired penman who wrote by inspiration the words which he, in this very location, said, when you read these words that I have written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you don't need any special direct operation of the Spirit You don't need the Spirit to interpret these words for you. You just read them. Read them with the right attitude. Read them with a receptive attitude, and you can understand what I have written. That's Ephesians 3, 3 and 4. But in Ephesians 5 and verse 17, remember there he admonished, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's very clear that we can understand the Word of God. And the psalmist, on more than one occasion in this beautiful psalm, has pleaded with God to have him understand 
to bless his efforts to understand the revelation of God. And of course, to the psalmist, we believe David, most likely, who penned these words, that law was the law of Moses, a law that has no application to us today, except that the things were written aforetime were written for our learning, uh, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, as Paul wrote in Romans 15:4. Obviously, we can gain from looking at that Old Testament law, but it does not apply to us today. We're under the new covenant, the law of Christ. But these principles that are set forth in every line of this beautiful psalm concerning our attitude toward the Word of God, concerning the power of the Word of God, all of those principles have application to us as we apply those principles to our understanding and application of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And so he writes, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. And here in the next verse we see the fervency of the plea because with very slight variation he continues, Let my supplication or my prayer of supplication. First in the verse previously, my cry. And now my supplication. Uh, I'm begging for... Uh, for your uh, help, for you to hear my word. In the previous verse, let my cry come before you, O Lord. In other words, he wanted to know and wanted to plead with God to understand, to hear, and to, and to respond favorably to his plea and hear to his supplication or prayer of supplication. Let it come before you. You know, that reminds us that for our prayers to come before God. And that's what we want all our prayers to do, do we not? We want them all to come before Him. That is, we want Him to take notice of them. We want Him to hear them. We want Him to respond to them. If our prayers are to have any hope of coming before Him, then indeed they must be delivered from hearts that are filled to overflowing with gratitude for His love toward us and hearts that have responded to that love by a gratitude that expresses itself in obedience to the will of God. The privilege of prayer is a privilege that is precious beyond description, and yet it is a privilege that belongs only to those who, as the psalmist here, has depicted himself with humble confidence, is a servant of the Lord and following his will. Remember Proverbs 28, 9? He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. Prayer is a wonderful privilege, but we need to not only make sure that we're in covenant relationship with God and Christ so that that prayer will come before Him and we know He will hear and therefore answer in accordance with His will, but even as those who are in covenant relationship with Him, we are admonished in Scripture to make sure that we pray in accordance with His will and that we don't pray for things that we would waste on ourselves or things that would be materialistic and unnecessary, but that our prayers to God through Jesus Christ are offered through Christ, our mediator, and that they are offered in harmony with His will. And remember, John in his writings reminds us that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us and He will respond in the way that is absolutely best for us whether we think it's best for us or not, we don't always know what's best for us. He does, and He will respond in harmony with what is best for us. But what a wonderful reassurance it is to know that our prayers come before the very throne of God, enter into His throne room, throne room as it were, 
before him and that he hears and that he answers. But let us make sure that all things are right with him in order to have that confidence and that assurance. And here the psalmist, again, as he has done often in this beautiful psalm, asks for deliverance. And we have mentioned before that if indeed David is the author of this psalm, there were those who were his enemies at various times all through his young adult and later adult life. He had many challenges to face, and there were many opportunities for him to cry to God for deliverance. And yet he did that with confidence and prayed that God would deliver according to his word. In other words, I think here, according to the promise of that word, that God will deliver. God may not always deliver us at the time that we think deliverance ought to come or in the very way that we think deliverance ought to come, but again, it goes back to God hearing and answering our prayer in terms of what is best for us. And we know that whatever we have to endure here, ultimately, the final deliverance, the ultimate victory, belongs to those who remain faithful to God. In the next verse, the psalmist in verse 171 writes, My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. What we have expressed here is an attitude of gratitude, if you will. Here is an example of what is not unrequited love on the part of the psalmist. He understands and appreciates the love that God has shown to him in his life. And he wants to make absolutely sure that he returns that love, that he reciprocates with a love that manifests itself in praise for God, praise for what God has done for him. And so he says, my lips will utter praise for you teach me your statutes. I will manifest my gratitude for what you, God, have delivered to me and shown to me through your word. I will utter praise and gratitude for what you have shown me in your word. Now, think about this, though. If we spend precious little time with that word, then our gratitude for what God has revealed to us in that word will not be as intense and as complete as it will otherwise be. In other words, praise grows as perception grows. Your praise for God and your gratitude to God as you express that praise to Him for what He has revealed in His Word will grow in direct proportion to the time you spend feeding upon this Word and fully appreciating what it does for your life. That's what David is saying here. Indeed, my lips shall utter praise. Look at the word for. For, because you teach me your statutes. And my gratitude for that teaching will be manifested continually through my praise. Praise in lip service and praise in life service. But what if we spend precious little time with what God has taught us? And the only way he's going to teach us is through the written word. If we don't spend much time with that written word, then our gratitude for that written word is not going to intensify as it otherwise will. Again, praise goes or grows with perception. The more we perceive and understand and appreciate what God has given us in his word, the more we will praise him for that word. 
And then in verse 172, the psalmist writes, My tongue shall speak of your word. Really a somewhat of a continuation of the thought of verse 171. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. All your commandments are righteousness. My tongue will speak of your word. In other words, the more time I spend with your word, the more gratitude that I feel for what your word does for my life, the change that it brings, the comfort that it brings, the joy that it brings, the peace that comes from studying and knowing and applying the word of God, the more that I contemplate that and experience the effects of that all-sufficient word, my tongue cannot help but praise you for your commandments. All of them are righteousness. You know, it's reminiscent of a time in, in Jeremiah's life, the weeping prophet, and he had much about which to weep. But at one point in his life, at a time of discouragement, he said this, Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones, I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. I could not. It's somewhat reminiscent, I think, of what David is saying here. My tongue shall speak of your word. Because I've spent so much time with that word, I recognize that all your commandments are righteousness, and my tongue can do no less than speak of your word. And oh, let us not take lightly the word all. All your commandments are righteousness. How many people are there in the religious world today who claim to love and follow God and Christ who really, if they were consistent, cannot say and do not say all your commandments are righteousness? For example... What about faith? Are there many people, tragically today, who do not believe and therefore do not speak of faith as it is revealed in the New Testament, but contend rather for faith alone and salvation by faith alone? Do those who contend for salvation by faith alone believe that all his commandments are righteousness? They do not. They claim to believe it, but as kindly as I can say it, they do not believe that all his commandments are righteousness because, you see, faith alone is denied in Scripture, not affirmed. You see that by works a man is justified, an inspired man, James wrote, and not by faith alone. Not works of the law of Moses, as we've said, not works of of righteousness by my own righteousness, by which I would seek to save myself and merit my salvation, but works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Tragically, there's so many tonight, and sincerely so, I do not doubt their sincerity, who deny what the Scriptures teach about faith and therefore deny that all His commandments are righteous. What about those, and I mentioned a man recently, who say that baptism 
Baptism is a commandment, but not a necessary commandment. Or who say, as this gentleman did in his correspondence to us, I believe we need to be baptized to be obedient, but we're not saved by it. Therefore, the conclusion would be, I can be saved without being obedient. Does that individual at this point, at least in his life, believe that all of God's commandments are righteousness? He does not. He does not. Hopefully he will come to believe that they all are, including baptism for the remission of sins, and that he will carefully contemplate the response that I offered to him in writing and look further into God's word. And our fervent prayer would be that all those who by their belief and by their affirmation deny that all God's commandments are righteousness will come ultimately to the full knowledge of the truth and cease to deny that all his commandments are righteousness and fully determine to comply wholeheartedly with all his commandments as David was determined to do if David be the author of this beautiful psalm. And when we are obedient, we can call upon him as David does in the next verse for help with the confidence and assurance that he will help. Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. There's a New Testament passage or two in the book of Hebrews that is very similar to the sentiment that is expressed here by the psalmist. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, or 15 and 16, to gain the context, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's where the psalmist was here in a time of need, and he asked, let your hand become my help. Then when we turn over to Hebrews 13, and look there at verses 15 and 16. Therefore by him let us continually, let us conti or verses 5 and 6, I'm sorry, let your conduct be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6 of Hebrews 13. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. Let your hand become my help. But you know something? For us to be able to pray for the Lord to let his hand become our help, we have to put our hand to the work as well. We have to put our hand to the work of the Lord and put our hands in his, as it were, through obedience to the gospel of Christ. And then when we've done that, we have the wonderful privilege again of calling upon him to lend us a hand and to involve himself in helping us. And notice what is tied to this plea. Lord, let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I can pray with confidence for your help because I know that I've made the choice to follow your teaching. And that's absolutely crucial 
in the equation, isn't it? We cannot expect to call and receive help unless we have chosen his precepts. And in our case, as we've already stated, those precepts belong to the new covenant, the New Testament of Christ. You know, this phrase, I have chosen your precepts, takes us back to the thought of this morning's sermon about Martha and Mary. What did Jesus say about Mary in the last verse at which we looked this morning? Verse 42 of Luke 10, But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. I have chosen your precepts. Mary chose the spiritual over the physical. She has chosen the good part. The psalmist here expresses to the Lord that he had also made the right choice. Remember Joshua in Joshua 24 reminded the people in verse 22 of Joshua 24, you be a witness here. You witness that you have chosen the Lord today. And they said, we are witnesses. But that's the point. They had to make the choice. And he set that choice before them in that beautiful verse that is so familiar to us in verse 15 of Joshua 24. You have the choice of serving the gods your father served on the other side of the flood of the gods of this land in whom you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the choice that we must make, and that's the choice the psalmist would make. Therefore, he could with confidence appeal to the Lord to lend a helping hand, as it were. And then he adds in verse 175, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Your law is my delight. I long for your salvation. Go back just not many verses earlier to verse 166. The verse, uh, one of the verses we studied last time. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. Now here in verse uh, 174, he says, I long for your salvation. In 166, I hope for your salvation. I desire your salvation. I hope for your salvation in the earlier verse. Well, we've talked about hope. It is desire, but it's desire coupled with expectation based upon the realization that we have made the right choice, that we are following his will, and therefore we can have that hope. Two words you could remember from 174 here. Desire, I long for. Desire, and I delight in your law. Desire and delight. I desire that salvation, the ultimate salvation in heaven. I desire it, I long for it, and if I will continue to delight in his word, I will keep myself on a path to ultimately possess that eternal salvation. What about while I live on this earth? What kind of life will I live? Verse 175 of the psalm says, Let my soul live and it shall praise you. In other words, if you bless me with life, as long as I'm allowed to live, the psalmist says, it will be a life in which I praise you. And a life in which I call upon you, your judgments, to help me. Does that sound anything like a statement we read in the New Testament from the pen of the Apostle Paul? 
Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, the Apostle Paul said, As long as I'm living, it's going to be Christ that lives in me. As long as I'm alive, I will live for Christ. The psalmist says virtually the same thing. Let my soul live and it shall praise you. In other words, as long as there's life in my body, then I will praise you through my obedience and I will rely upon your judgments. But it's interesting that after this expression of what we might call confidence and commitment, that indeed as long as he lived, he would praise God and rely upon his judgments. The very last verse of the psalm says this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Again, he affirms that he hasn't forgotten his commandments, and yet he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. What's he saying? It's as though he brings to a conclusion, after all of the expressions of confidence and delight in the law of God, and everything that he has said about the wonderful relationship that he sustains with God and that he wants to continue to sustain with God, he nonetheless recognizes that despite everything he does, he still is a human being and that he's still like that lost sheep and that there are times that he does fall short and that there are times that he sins and that he is totally dependent upon God, the ultimate shepherd, as we are dependent upon God and upon the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, as our advocate because we are not sinless, nor was the psalmist. And so he says, I recognize my undone condition, and while I can have confidence in my relationship to the Lord, I still understand that that confidence is not based upon my self-righteousness or my ability to earn my salvation, but I'm still dependent upon the shepherd to seek his servant as sheep who at times do go astray. And yet, isn't it a wonderful blessing that in this, the new covenant, the new dispensation, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse those sheep, even though they fall short as they continue to keep up their walk in the light, as God is in the light, and as they regularly and fervently confess their sins to the throne of heaven. But there are those lost sheep who are no longer enjoying that blessing. There are those who've left the fold. There are those who are no longer faithful as they once were. They need to be sought as well, fervently and continually with every effort that we can exert. As I close our thoughts tonight and as we close the study of this psalm, we covet your prayers as a congregation for those who are in that very condition here at White Oak. That is, those about whom we spoke, not by name specifically yesterday in our men's meeting, but in generalities about those whom we know and whom you know who are no longer a faithful part of the body of Christ here, about whom we are deeply concerned, and whom we love with all of our hearts. 
And because we do, we must not neglect our responsibility and our duty as every member of the congregation has that duty to do all that we can to seek and to bring home those lost sheep. Let me share with you and just remind you of a couple of passages that make it abundantly clear that that is our responsibility. In Matthew chapter 18, at verse 12, remember what the Lord says there? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. There's a similar expression by the Lord in Luke chapter 15, verse 4, remember? What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he finds it, when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. That's what we ultimately hope to do over the souls of many who are no longer a faithful part of the body here, and that is to rejoice when they return home. But whether they return home or not, we must do as the Lord said and make every effort we can in love, diligently, and fervently, and continually to make every effort to reclaim those precious lost sheep and return them to the shepherd and overseer of their souls, as Peter states it in 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. You notice what the final word of this psalm is? The last word in Psalm 119 is commandments. Commandments. And all through this psalm, Words like commandments, testimonies, statutes, precepts, all of those words that describe the wonderful law of God remind us of how important that law is. Oh yes, the law about which we've studied in this psalm was a law that was temporary in nature, was never designed by God to be the ultimate and final revelation of God to man, but was a forerunner, a precursor, if you will, to the final precepts that God would set forth in his new covenant, the final covenant of God to man, the new covenant, where there can be new life for all who will render obedience to the terms of that covenant. What are they? Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. If there's a sheep here who needs to come home tonight, and you know that, we plead with you to come home to your first love. Come back to the fold of God 
the sheepfold where the chief shepherd protects and guides and leads through his word. And as a faithful part of that sheepfold, you enjoy the blessings, spiritual in nature, all spiritual blessings, including the privilege that has been emphasized so often in this beautiful psalm of going before the very throne of God through your mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ, knowing that he hears, knowing that he answers, knowing that he forgives, knowing that he, through his word, will comfort. If you need to come home, we plead with you to do that tonight. As we stand to sing, will you come?